right, I'm trying to get a little bit of a read on the room here, see what I'm dealing with today. <clears throat> All right, well, it, it looks like um, pretty friendly. All right, that's good. Uh, not too much hostility yet. I mean, it's still early. We'll see. Maybe, maybe a little bit of apathy, you know, here and there. Harder to get a read on folks joining us online, but I'm glad you're there as well. But um, Hopefully there's some spiritual explorers and seekers here. We're glad to have you. But I'm guessing most of you, you know, probably in support of what I'm going to be talking about. So I'm mostly preaching to the choir right now, okay. Um, not everybody is, is young people or Gen X, so I'm probably not going to use those uh, song lyrics from Drake and BTS today. Um, not everybody's boomers either, so I guess there goes my Beverly Hillbillies and Dragnet illustrations. And I don't see a whole lot of Shakespearean English fans out there, it doesn't look like, so, uh, you know, I'll probably leave off using the King James Version today, you know, yea, verily, hither the two thou verily knowest stuff, you know, I'll leave that out. I'll just use a little bit more modern English translation, you know, because this is the idea, is when you're trying to persuade people, you got to know your audience, and sometimes you have to adapt to the audience if you want to be effective. You got to use illustrations and metaphors and cultural markers that they can relate to or else you're not going to reach them. And so that's what we're talking about today, the story of Paul in the book of Acts on his second missionary journey, trying to adapt to the audience, you know, because he's going to these different cities. And we're all called to be missionaries. We're all called to be evangelists, that is, people who share the good news of Jesus. Some intentionally will go to foreign lands where they have to learn the language and study the culture so they can speak to the people there. But even if you remain here, you still got to be sensitive to all those things where people's you know, religious beliefs are, their cultural background, their interests, their needs, uh, all their, their uh, beliefs. You got to take all that into account if you're going to be effective. And that's our big idea today is to find common ground to be a more effective evangelist. If you want to take people from where they are to where they need to be, you've got to be able to adapt to your audience. So get out your Bible on your app or your lap. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. And let's go ahead and this week put the map back up on the screen that we left off last week with Paul. How many people are into geography? How many geography buffs? All right, this is for you right here. All right, here we go. Uh, they start over on the right side of the map. They're Antioch in Syria. They travel through Turkey, Asia Minor, over into Europe. So now they're on the left side of the map. Go up to Philippi. That's where Silas and, and Paul, traveling together, get imprisoned. Uh, they get beaten with rods, and they get out of town and head down to Thessalonica, where they get run out of town by a mob and head down to Berea. Once again, get run out of town by a mob. So they're getting a lot of both receptivity and rejection. That's when Paul heads down to Athens and where we find him in our passage today, the great city of Athens. Let's pick up in verse 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, who? Well, he leaves Silas and Timothy behind in Berea to strengthen the church there. When he's at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Athens, you know, was this great influential uh, cultural center of Western civilization with all the education and the philosophy and the beautiful architecture, the temples and the statues. But Paul knew that all that was based on idolatry and mythology. Think of all the Greek gods and goddesses you learned about in 
middle school. Well, you know, that's what Paul is in the midst of right here. So it was really distressing for him to walk around Athens and see all the darkness of this paganism and superstition. It deeply troubled him and grieved him. You know, when people walk the streets of Athens today, they still see some of these beautiful buildings, even though they're kind of old and broken down. They see the Parthenon, you know, on the Acropolis, that hill, and they marvel at, at its, its beauty. But for Paul, he knew what that temple was all about, that it represented hundreds of years of uh, pagan idolatry. You know, the Parthenon itself had been standing for 400 years with this four-foot, four-story tall statue of the goddess Athena. And sacrifices would be made to these gods and all this worship and even temple prostitution was going on in this area. So eight years ago, I got to go visit Athens in Nashville. Did you know there was such a place? There's really a temple just like it. And I wasn't really troubled by it like Paul was because I don't think anybody was worshiping there. But I wonder if we look around our culture and we see all the idolatry and the immorality of our society, all the secular thinking that's going on and the false spiritualities and uh, the godless immorality, all that stuff. I wonder, does it cause us the same kind of trouble? Does it provoke us? I mean, do, do we just ignore it or does it bring out our compassion and compel us to want to share Jesus with these people. I think about Christians who travel over to the Far East and they see the Buddhist temples or or over to India and they see the Hindu shrines and they'll come back and report how they just felt this overwhelming uh, darkness, this, this evil from being in these pagan areas because they knew what was going on there, that, that all of that religiosity was actually demonic. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. In chapter 10 of that letter, he says, no, but the sacrifices of pagans are often to demons, not to God. You know, I used to live in a neighborhood uh, that has a mosque right across the street, and every day I drive past it, and it troubled me to think about all the people who are going there to worship what they believe is the one true God, but actually they are under condemnation. They're in sin, they're in, they're in false beliefs because they're rejecting Jesus as God's Son and Savior. So it, it is troubling. But it's so easy just to finally start forgetting that, looking past all that, ignoring it and saying, you know what, the people around here, they're nice neighbors, it seems like they're doing okay, they got their own religion, Uh, I'll just just leave them be. That is not an option for us, right? Because not if we we believe the Bible's true, not if we believe in the gospel, not if we care about people. How can we not tell them about Jesus? Because what they're believing is wrong, it's false. They're condemned, they're headed for hell. So if we're not sharing the good news with them, then it tells us either we don't really believe the gospel, we don't believe Jesus when he said he's the only way to God, or maybe we don't really care about people like we thought we did, or maybe it's just our fear is overpowering our faith. But not Paul. What does he do? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So remember, Paul is strategic in the way he does this. He would go to the big cities that were influential, and uh, the message of Christ would start there and spread out to the whole region around them. He would also first go to the synagogue, the Jewish place of worship, because it was the Jews who should have been most receptive to this message about the their Messiah, but of course, often they were not. Uh, they would often reject that message, which is why Paul would turn to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, also called the Greeks. And so uh, he goes into the marketplace 
You know, he, he tries the synagogue, but then he goes to the marketplace. It's not like, you know, we're walking down the aisles of Kroger. We're talking about this a big public gathering area space where people would get together and hang out and have conversations about the latest news or, or politics or religion. Maybe you can get into a few debates about all that. Now, synagogue was just once a week, day of worship, right? But it says he intentionally went into the marketplace every day to engage with these people so he could share his faith with them. And he reasoned with them which tells us our faith is reasonable. It's not just something inspirational and emotional. It's something that we can explain and argue and defend and prove. So it's harder for us today to find that marketplace, right, where we can hang out and have these kind of conversations. Where is your marketplace? Because even though it's more difficult, we, we can't give up on the idea of intentionally going to where the people are so that we have opportunities to talk about Jesus. Now, verse 18 says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So understand, Athens is kind of like this university town. The philosophers hang out there. We think of the great ones like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and Sophocles. But there are a couple of major schools of philosophy called the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they were kind of opposites, but they both tended to exalt the self. The uh, Stoics were more intellectual, more pantheistic, you know, all the gods and gods and everything. And the Epicureans were more atheistic, actually, and more focused on the physical, like on pleasures and hedonism. They're the ones who said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So the Epicureans were saying, enjoy life. The Stoics were saying, endure life. Paul was offering eternal life because he was preaching the resurrection of Jesus. He told them about the keystone of our faith. Because without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Our, our faith isn't founded on some sort of philosophical principles that can neither be proven nor disproven, but upon historical fact. This historical person who rose from the dead. Jesus was a real person who lived a perfect life and taught the most sublime truths the world has ever known, performed miracles, sacrificed his life, crucified on the cross, and rose from the dead in the very city where people saw him executed. They also saw him rise, and in that very city where it could be verified, that's where the church began. So all of that was just not making an impact on these Greek people because it wasn't as enlightened and sophisticated as they were used to. It sounded like nonsense, which is ironic because have you ever studied philosophy? You ever sat in a philosophy class? I mean, it sounds like a bunch of babbling, right? They're chasing after your tail with, with all the subjective speculations. And this was, this was illogical to them. I mean, it's, it's really hard to reach intellectual people, I think, because, you know, their, their intellect gets in the way sometimes, kind of pr prideful about it. Like, who do you think you are to tell me that you have the truth? You know, what is truth? There is no real truth. We're free to, to define it for ourselves. And, and so it's hard to reach them, but we don't give up on them. We don't ignore them, abandon them. They just need some people who can really define and defend the gospel to them. You know, a lot of people back then believed in life after death, but nobody was teaching bodily resurrection. No, that was unthinkable. That was just not only illogical, it was, it was crude. The idea of a, of a God coming to earth and becoming a human in flesh and blood, a God who could be killed, that doesn't sound like much of a God. 
And the idea of coming back to life, I mean, we all know dead men don't come back to life. So this was very incompatible with Greek philosophy that saw really the body was more of a prison, something to be escaped, not something that a God would want to enter into. So yeah, Im- immortality, yes. Resurrection, no, no way. That was foreign to their way of thinking. Now, they had no problem with worshiping a lot of gods. As I said, they had a huge pantheon of gods and no problem adding more of them. But there was something different about this Christian God. I mean, they had gods of everything. They had gods of war, gods of of wealth, gods of art, gods of of pleasure, gods of uh, farming, gods of plumbing. I mean, literally, they had a god over everything. But this Christian God was exclusive. He claimed that there were no other gods. Well, that didn't sit well with them right away. It was exclusive, and it had upset their current teachings. Again, not only did they have gods over everything, but they had gods over every city. Like every city had a patron god. And so the idea of introducing this foreign god from some distant land didn't make much of an impact on them either. In fact, Paul describes these kind of people later to the Corinthians. That's the city where he's going to go next after Athens. We'll, we'll see that next week. But he writes to them, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. And that's the kind of people we have to deal with all the time, right? You, you probably deal with people who are educated, but not really seeking the truth. Kind of elite people who disparage your ignorant backwards beliefs. It's nothing new. But remember... We actually have divine revelation, not human speculation. We have a faith that's built on facts, not feelings. So we should expect that kind of reaction from people because we're dealing with something more than logic. All those people who say, well, I have intellectual difficulties with Christianity. Really, it goes beyond that because we're dealing with the heart as well. With people who have had personal experiences, who, ha- who disbelieve based on prejudices. It's not that they can't believe, it's that they don't want to. They don't like it. So they reject it. Now what's the reaction that Paul gets? Kind of piques their curiosity. Verses 19 to 21. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. And we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this was something that tickled their ears. It was something novel. Uh, We want to find out what this is all about, which is kind of like our society today, right? They, They had what we would call FOMO, fear of missing out. Like, what's the newest, latest thing happening? You know, we, we're always checking what, what's trending on Twitter and what are the, scanning the headlines for what's going on right now. So they love this kind of stuff. And the, the Areopagus was actually the council of the city that oversaw religion and education. And they got the name from where they typically met, which was on an outcrop of rock in the city called the Areopagus or, or the, the Hill of Ares, the god of war. Or in Romans, it was called Mars Hill. Now, they're most likely not taking Paul up to that, that rock 
but they're going to meet right there in the marketplace, which was more common, where they could hear these things. You know, and the thing is, they were used to hearing about other religions. Back then, what was really popular were these mystery religions, which only the initiated knew the secrets of. But Paul was proclaiming these mysterious things right out in the open, and they want to investigate this new thing. So verses 22 and 23, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, now understand what he's doing. He's appealing to his audience based on their religiosity. He found the common ground. They didn't believe the same things, but they were religious. And so he could use their own beliefs as a launching pad to tell them, what he believed, to take them from where they were to where they needed to be. So they were religious, which that word meant they feared their deities. Feared them, but they didn't have any relationship, which is what Paul was offering with the true God. And isn't it true you run into people all the time who say, well, I'm I'm religious, I'm a spiritual person, but they're still just as lost and condemned because they don't have a relationship with God through his son Jesus. Now, Paul's dilemma was, what do I do? If I, if I attack their religion, well, they're going to shut me down and kick me out, just like all the other cities. But if I ignore their religion and um, you know, act like it's not a big deal, well, then they're not going to see any relevance to what I'm talking about. They're not going to understand their need for Jesus. So I've got to find a bridge. And, and, and he certainly does. Verse 23. I found also an altar with this inscription... To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Okay, now he's really piqued their interest, right? He's got an opening to talk about the true God. And again, they had gods of everything, um, but they didn't know the true God. In fact, they were worried that in case they missed a God, They built an altar to an unknown God. You know, just cover their bases. They didn't want to offend some God they weren't aware of. And Paul says, this God that you don't know, that's the one you actually really need to know. Verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You can can picture him there in the marketplace pointing to the hill right over there, the, the Acropolis. See the Parthenon? That building, that magnificent building you built for your gods? The true God doesn't need that. Think about that. He's the maker of everything. He doesn't need you to make him a temple to live in, which even the Jewish people had trouble with that, right? Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. That was Greek religion right there. You give to the gods so they will give back to you. The Greeks had needs for food and drink and all their necessities, and so the way to get that was to sacrifice to the gods who would then provide it for you. So if you gave to them, they'd give back to you, right? Nice little deal going on there. Paul says, come on. The true God doesn't need anything from you. He's self-sufficient. He gives to you to provide for all your needs. Going on, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's not just this local tribal God over Israel or Jerusalem. He's the God of everything. And Paul backs up the Genesis story of Adam, that he was a real person, that every person who's ever lived came from that one man which, of course, strikes at the very heart of our naturalistic, humanistic, atheistic theory of evolution. 
And it strikes at the heart of racism because we all belong to one human race. We're all related to one another through Adam, no matter what your ethnicity or color. God is Lord of everybody and the Lord of the history of all nations. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He's not actually far from each one of us. That's really what religions are all about, is man's attempts to grope around in the dark and try to figure out how to please this divinity. You know, because they instinctively know from nature and from their conscience there is a God that we're accountable to. How do we make things right with this God? And everybody has their own ideas of what a deity should be like, which is why the Greeks created gods in their own image. Gods were just like them, cruel, vengeful, lustful, greedy, selfish gods. Polytheistic, many gods, pantheistic. All those religions are misguided efforts to try to reach up and please God through man-made efforts. But Christianity is very different. It's not us reaching up to God, it's God coming down to us because we could not please Him through our own efforts. God is both transcendent and imminent. That means He is both above and beyond us, and yet He is not distant from us. Jesus said that you can seek God and you will find Him. His half-brother James says, if you come near to God, He will come near to you. He wants a relationship with you. He's not some distant God off on Mount Olympus somewhere. Our God is a God of love and wants to be in relationship with you. That's why he came and became one of us and gave his life for us so that we could be together with him. And no amount of sacrificial offerings that you, you offer up to these gods is going to do that for you because you know nothing about grace, that there's nothing we can do to earn or deserve a relationship with God. He's done it all for us. He freely gives us. So while everybody else is groping around in the dark, We've got the light of revelation. We've got the light of Jesus to show us the way. But Paul knew he really couldn't appeal to the Scriptures because they didn't know them, let alone respect them. So again, you've got to find common ground to be more effective evangelist. You've got to meet people where they are if you're going to take them to where they need to be. So Paul figured, he, I'm going to have to adapt to my audience I'm going to have to change up my method a little bit. Not change the message. You never change the gospel. But sometimes you have to change your approach. So what's he do? He quotes from their own poets. Verses 24 to 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. What we would call that is contextualizing to the culture. He's using their own revered poets to show them the truth, to say, look, first I'm going to quote this great poet Epimenides in his hymn he wrote to the god Zeus many years ago. And then I'm going to quote this second guy, this Stoic philosopher named um, Aratus, and by building that bridge, that common ground to their own poets, now I can begin to tell you about the real God. Because, see, poets are even referring to this unknown God. Let me tell you about him now. It's, we, we do the same thing if we were to quote from, say, a movie or a song lyric or some author or celebrity. It doesn't mean that we endorse everything some secular or pagan source says. It means we're trying to find that common ground. So it goes on, verses 29 31. Being then God's offspring, 
See, using own words against them. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Remember, you look around, they're seeing all these statues around them. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. In, in the past, God kind of let the nations go their own way, and He worked through just that one nation, Israel. But that time has passed because Jesus has now come, and He's raised the expectations. I mean, more light equals more responsibility. So making idols doesn't even make sense. Does it, really? You know better than that. He's our maker. He's not a creature who sits on a throne in a building. He's not like a statue that you bow down in front of. He's not some distant, far-removed deity, you know, up in the cloud somewhere. He's personal. He's here among us. He wants to be in relationship with you. He provides for you. He cares for you personally. He's the ruler of everything. He gives us life, and He gives life meaning. But instead, you guys are worshiping creatures instead of the Creator. Back to the Romans, he says this, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and mortal woman, all kinds of statues around Athens. And God's not going to overlook that anymore. That, and so I didn't know any better. You know better. And now that you know about Jesus, you really know better. There's no excuse. You know the truth. Come on, you admit it. You know deep down. You have lived in disbelief and disobedience. You have suppressed it. You have covered it up. You have ignored it and denied it. But now that guilt, that knowledge needs to lead you to repentance. And Paul did talk about judgment. That's something we tend to shy away from. Nobody wants to talk about judgment. But you know what? If you don't talk about judgment, then salvation really doesn't mean anything because there's nothing to be saved from. People have to know there's a judgment coming. That's why Jesus is so important. We're not promoting some sort of happy, nice, feel-good, uh, success and prosperity message here. We're talking about heaven and hell kind of stuff. Eternity is at stake, and people need to know the truth. They need to be convicted of that. Nothing is more important. Verses 32 through 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, well, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So look, guys, you're going to get the same kind of mixed reactions. Some people are going to mock and sneer and not take you seriously. Other people will be a little bit more interested. And a few may even join you in belief and be saved because of your witness. Now, it doesn't seem like Paul won a lot of people to the Lord in Athens, like he had in other cities, but he won some, including a philosopher and, and some others as well. Now, actually, we don't hear anything more about Athens from here on out in the Bible. There's no record of a church in Athens. But at least he didn't get kicked out of town this time. You just never know what kind of response you're going to get. Some of the people in your life may be very far from God. Some may be right on the verge of belief. And your job is just to take them from here to there. 
even if it's a baby step, take them a little bit further, closer to God. You do your best and let God take care of the rest. Leave the results in His hands. You know, how do you find a bridge? Think about the people in your life. How do you bridge that conversation into spiritual things? I'm just going to give you one example of how you can do that. We're going to call it a RAMP because it's an acronym, R-A-M-P. Simple ways is you, you say, can you tell me about your spiritual background or your church background? And then you listen to their, their story. And then you, you reciprocate, say, well, would it be okay if I told you about my spiritual background or my spiritual journey? And if they say no, it's <laughs> fine, you know, you move on. But if they say yes, then you go ahead and, and say something like, well, I've become a follower of Jesus uh, because God has given us some proofs. And you, you go into the four things. The resurrection of Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And there were eyewitnesses that saw him, saw the empty tomb. You have the apostles' testimony that said they saw him alive. They saw his perfect life. They saw his miracles. And he did all kinds of miracles. He did all these healings and supernatural acts that caused people to believe in him. And if that weren't enough, there were all these prophecies that he fulfilled from the scriptures. And that's pretty impressive too. Against astronomical odds, he fulfilled them. And then, you know, you invite them. Would you like to know more about Jesus? Would you like to look at some Bible verses together? Would you, would you like to become a follower of Jesus yourself? You can do that. So go ahead and text the word RAMP if you would like that full document that will walk you through on how to use that method. Text RAMP to that number that you see on the screen. But that's just one method. There are, there's there are plenty of others, but look, it still all comes back to the resurrection of Jesus. Because if Jesus did not rise, then he's just another dead philosopher. And, and his teachings mean nothing. So it's very important that people understand he rose from the dead. If he didn't, go ahead and eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But if he did, then you've got a decision you have to make the most important decision of your life. And maybe you're hearing this for the first time and it rings true, it makes sense. You're ready for this. You've been waiting for this. For others, it's piqued your curiosity and you're ready to know a little bit more. You've got some questions. Well, come talk to us. You know, at, at the end of this time together, at the end of this talk, I'm going to have some people up here at the front who will answer your questions best they can, pray with you, uh, help you make a decision to follow Christ, to be baptized, whatever. Maybe it's, maybe it's just come back next Sunday. Maybe that's where you are. Or maybe go out for brunch today with the person who invited you. I know they would love to take the conversation to the next level. Others of you, though, may be at the mocking stage. You know, like, all right, no, not for me. And you know, I appreciate that you at least gave it a fair hearing. But I was also challenge you, like, how's that going for you? How is your approach to God and life working out for you? Maybe it seems okay right now, but would you be open? Maybe later, because life may come along and knock you flat on your back, and you're going to find out that all you've been believing is simply sand. The shifting sands of human philosophies and speculations instead of building your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. So when you're ready, we'll be here. But understand, you never know how much time you do have. So are you seeking Him? Are you calling out to what may have been this unknown God? Would you say, hey God, if you're there, because I believe 
a serious seeker, God will reveal himself to. So if you're ready to do that, again, text your name or your, uh, uh, to the number or email or just talk to us after the service. And we'd love to help you make that most important decision. But I want to spend the last few moments here focusing on the missions. This is our missions month, and we're talking about the three categories of missions that we support as a church. The first is church planting, starting new churches. We saw last week two of them that uh, start churches in the Great Lakes region and in Canada. Today is Compassion Outreach. We'll talk about, next week we'll talk about global evangelism, all the other ways of reaching people by sending out ministers and missionaries into the world. But today we're going to look at uh, a couple of our missions, IDES and Go Impact 360, that help meet people's needs with the idea of opening a door to letting them know about Jesus. So International Disaster Emergency Services takes care of people's physical needs, to open up the spiritual needs. So I want you to watch this. We are IDES. International Disaster Emergency Service is a nonprofit meeting physical and spiritual needs of suffering people around the world in the name of Jesus. At IDES, we are eager to show Christ's love to those who are affected by disaster and other urgent needs. We help hurting people through five focus areas. We provide relief for disasters around the globe working through global mission partners who serve as the hand and feet of Jesus, caring for those in need. We work with volunteers and local churches to clean up communities and repair damaged homes, both internationally and domestically. Whether a hurricane, tornado, flood, or other type of disaster, IDES is quick to respond, providing funds and leading volunteers to meet critical needs in the name of Jesus. Volunteers working in affected areas muck out and repair homes, remove fallen trees, tarp roofs, and build sheds, all with the heart of showing the love of Jesus. We ensure there is nutritious food for those who do not have enough to eat and work with food pantries and do large-scale food distributions. Working with local partners, we provide meals and staple foods to those who are hungry while also nourishing their souls with the hope that can be found only in Jesus. Our GAP food packing program also allows volunteers to share God's love as they participate in meal packing events. GAP meals are then shipped to our global partners who distribute them to those who are malnourished. Our community development efforts give people the tools they need to create a better future for themselves and their families. Well drilling, livestock distribution, agricultural supplies, and vocational training are frequent examples of community development projects. Many people around the world do not have access to essential medical care. IDES is committed to providing our mission partners with medications, equipment, and other resources which help them care for many thousands of patients each year. These areas of focus are centered around evangelism. Disasters and other hardships are never welcome, but they create powerful opportunities for God's people to live out His transforming love in this hurting world. IDES is motivated by Jesus' call to love your neighbor as yourself and his commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The, the partnership that we have with IDES allows us to both meet the physical needs but also the spiritual needs of people in desperate places. Some of the areas where we work, they're suffering civil wars, suffering from famines and droughts, and we ourselves don't have the ability to meet every one of those needs but yet we can partner with a group like IDES. 
the donations that IDES receives empowers our workers on the ground to be able to do much more than they could ever do on their own. So we're really super thankful for our partnership with IDES. At IDES, we value the opportunity to partner with Christ followers just like you as we provide help and hope to those in need. Yeah, so last year uh, they provided food relief to over two dozen countries as well as flood relief to Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, some tornado relief in Georgia. Remember last week we talked about planning that new church in Beaverton, Michigan? That was a partnership with IDES and NCCE because some people from a church went out and helped in Midland. They had those floods there and out of that grew a brand new church. I want to put on the screen as well some other projects that IDES has been involved in with the Philippines ty typhoon, Colorado fires, Haiti earthquake, Afghanistan displacement, Myanmar refugees, and India flood areas. And this month our kids ministry is collecting change in these sunfish banks that is going to help, let's put a picture of there, that's going to go to uh, food and hunger relief all over the world. So we're including the kids in this as well. The other mission that we support as part of Compassion Outreach is called Go Impact 360. It's a spinoff from a ministry that we had here at South Point, turned it into a nonprofit organization led by this guy. What's up, South Point? On behalf of Go Impact 360, I just want to say thank you for your support. In 2021, here are a few things that we were able to accomplish thanks to donors like yourself. In Down River, uh, we encouraged in the form of handwritten notes and small gifts over 600 local school teachers in Down River. We sent more than 40 leaders, almost 400 volunteers in that project we call Go Serve to more than 100 homes in Down River. Uh, those like widows, disabled veterans, um, people that were in physical need, uh, rake their leaves, clean gutters, and other physical projects. In Romania, man, the ministry just continues to multiply. It's crazy. We partner with a local church called the Bethel Church. Uh, they have a second camp. They, they're in Georgiou, which is southeast corner of Romania. And then they have a second campus in a small village called Pietrashan. We gave more than $5,500 support for a groceries project where each month, uh, 12 families received essential groceries and supplies. And these families are in extreme poverty situations. Uh, people from the church would actually go every month, deliver these, have a conversation, pray for, share the gospel, encourage, um, build a relationship with them. It's a powerful ministry. We also gave more than $1,000 in school supplies. The dropout rate from a kid to get before they get to high school is 30% in this region. So we want to make a dent. The local church has been able to build relationships with local schools, teachers, and families. Also, we gave scholarships to three different college students um, so that they can continue their education and also continue to serve the local church. We gave $1,200 in emergency aid to things like medical bills, things that just popped up that the church was able to bless people who were just in extreme need. One of those was Melina and her seven kids. South Point, you guys bought her a bed and paid for three months worth of rent. Uh, the kids were so excited about this bed. They invited everybody from the church to come check it out, invited their friends. Hey, come look at our bed, a bed. Thank you for helping us make an impact. The local church there has started a gospel uh, local program on on television show. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And uh, they did kids camps and also a sports program where dozens of kids heard the gospel for the first time. They partnered with Operation Christmas Child and gave more than 4,000 kids Christmas gifts. Cool opportunity. And they share the gospel. Um, 2022, we're looking to increase the work by adding two more families. Plus, groceries everywhere has gone up, so it's going to cost $45 a month per family. And we're going to add two more to make it, or three more to make it 15 families this year. 
We're also gonna add a second GoServe event in the spring of 2022 where we can serve local uh, community partners, organizations here in Downriver. Uh, 2021 was difficult like everybody else. But what we found or were reminded of once again is that our impact is not in our programs, but in people, people who choose to go, go make an impact. So this year, please thank you. We thank you for your continued support, but also we want to challenge you and encourage you to, to be one of those people. You're watching this, pray that more and more people would choose to go make an impact. Thanks. So way that we support all that every year is we do a celebration of generosity in February to uh, supply funds for all the missions that we support. So that's going to be taking place uh, the following week, starting a week from tomorrow, February 21 through 27. Everything you give, every dollar given during that whole week will go to support all of these missions. And we hope that you will be pr praying about that, preparing to do the best that you can do. Hopefully we have far more than typical and you can give twice or three times as much as you normally do for all these these great things. But um, every week you can give uh, through the, the app or on the website or the give boxes or the email to help us win downriver to Christ as well because what you're doing is making a difference in people's lives forever. You're making disciples. You're investing your treasures in heaven and you enable two more people to make the best decision ever last week and be baptized into Christ. So I know they appreciate that as well. We never ask our guests to give anything at all, um, but if you are a believer in Christ, another way that you can respond is through communion. We're going to share in that time right now. When you came in, you received the, the cup and the juice and the little kit. You can peel those back and share in that. If you're not a Christian, you can go ahead and use this time quietly for, for reflection, prayer, whatever you want to use it for. But this is a time for believers to uh, remember what Jesus did for us to proclaim our faith in the gospel, uh, that he, he died for us, but he's alive, and he's coming back for us. So let's go to him in prayer right now. Father, we first want to pray that you will help us in, in our outreach, God, that we would all be able to say, Lord, here I am. I'm available. Use me. Cause me to cross paths with somebody who needs Jesus. Go before me to prepare the way and give me the words to say. Father, would you help us to find common ground <clears throat> with the people in our lives and, and to find a bridge to a spiritual conversation. And, and for everybody outside of our relationships around the world, enable us to be generous and su support the work of missions, God. And I want to thank you for this church that cares about reaching people and, and loving people who are far from you. I'm asking, God, that you would bring people right now to faith, that you would convict them and open their hearts to receive Jesus. We're also using this time of communion not just to pray about ourselves, but to pray for our family and our friends, people by name that need to know Christ, God. Um, how can you use us to reach them? We ask this all through Christ. Amen.